Okay, friends, the story begins. We are concluding Psuke Zimra verses of praise today. We're on page 38. The verses of praise section of, of Davening started on page 30. It started with a blessing. That was the Baruch Shamar on page 30. It concludes with a blessing. That's on page 38. And it's sandwiched in the middle with various verses of praise that we had from Tehillim. We had the Song of the Sea and all various other Biblical verses. Yishtabach. Yishtabach is one of the more known prayers. Let's quickly read through it just to get an understanding, a general um, aerial view of what's going on. And then we're going to dive in. And what we're going to see is something fascinating and insightful about our Judaism. Page 38. I'll quickly read through it. May your name be praised forever, our King, the Almighty God, the Great and Holy King in heaven and on earth. For to you, Lord, our God and God of our fathers, it is fitting to offer forever song and praise, adoration and melody, to acclaim your might and dominion, victory, grandeur, and power, glory, splendor, holiness, and sovereignty. Blessings and thanksgiving to your great and holy name from the highest world to the lowest, you are God. Blessed are you, Lord, almighty God, great king extolled with praises, God worthy of thanksgiving, master of wonders, creator of all souls, ruler of all creatures who takes pleasure in songs of praise. You are the holy king, the life of all the worlds. Okay, beautiful praise. What is the story behind this? Who wrote it? So this is something I just found out today um, it, uh, in, in the process of my research. This prayer was authored by King Solomon. And he embedded his name in the prayer. He hid his name in the prayer. Take a look on page 38, the first line. In the Hebrew, please. We're going to take a look at the Hebrew. Again, just historical context. King Solomon was King David's son. And he was the first king to reside during the Beit HaMikdash. King David, unfortunately, didn't really get to take part in the first Beit HaMikdash. Uh, maybe he did a little bit, but King Solomon is the one who actually built it, and then he took over the reign. Let's take a look at the beginning. I'm going to read the Hebrew, just the first line, and translate it. Yishtabach. Yishtabach means praise. Shimcha, your name. La'ad, forever, Malkeno, our king. Okay, take a look at the first, sorry, the second word, Shimcha. What letter does that start with? Shin. Second letter. Second word, sorry, la'ad. Starts with the lamid. Third word, malkenu. Starts with the mem. Fourth word, hakel. God. Starts with the hey. That spells shlomo. Solomon. King Solomon is the one who authored this prayer. Why did he author this prayer? So there's a story behind it. King Solomon was known to have an incredibly exquisite throne, a high-tech throne. Have you heard about King Solomon's throne? Okay, after the class, you'll Google it. You can check on Chabad.org, King Solomon's throne. He was known to have a very unique throne. There were six steps to get up to his gold throne. And on each step, there was, an Im there was a carved golden image of some sort of animal, on each different animal on each step. And there was it there was some sort of mechanism the way it was built, where it would actually carry him up to the throne. You know there was some sort of like shifts and gears. It was a high tech. It was it was not a cheap throne. 
So you walk into a palace, anytime you see some sort of king in a palace, you see some, you know, there's, there's a vibe, you know, you feel like, whoa. But you walk into King Solomon's palace, into his chamber, and you see the mechanism here. You see his glorious and beautiful throne. How do you feel about this king? Right? This is the role of a king. The king has to actually fill that role. Um, it, it, you know, a king, it's interesting because in Judaism, we value, we revere only God, but we also have a king. The king himself has to be kingly, majestic. But on the other hand, the king internally needs to be humble. It goes so far that there was a rabbi named the Ruziner, Rabbi Yisrael of Ruzin. He was a student of the Magad of Mezrich, going back a little less than 200 years ago. And he would dress majestically. He had golden shoes. But internally, he was humble. His shoes didn't have anything on the bottom of them. He was walking barefoot. It was an, That's obviously an extreme example. But he was trying to fill a certain role because he understood that that was the role he had to fill. But internally, he was very humble. Okay, so King Solomon is on this throne. And people are just saying, wow, what a king. King Solomon says, as a good king should, you guys are missing the point. The point of a king is to inspire us with leadership to bring us closer to God. So he says, stop praising me. <laughs> Praise God. And it's, it was with that inspiration that he composed this prayer, Yishtabach Shimcha, praise the name of God. That was the motivation behind it. People were praising Solomon because of his exquisite throne, or that was part of it, because of just, you know, he was such a glorious, majestic king. He says, praise God. That's the whole purpose of a king. A king is there to bring us closer to God. The reverence that we have toward the king is supposed to translate into reverence to God. And and, and that's why one of, the re one of the reasons is there's a mitzvah in the Torah for every Jew is supposed to write a Savior Torah, right? And we do that with, there's different ways to actually fulfill that mitzvah practically. You have a letter, purchase a letter in the Savior Torah, which is an important thing. But a king also has to have a, besides for a king writing a Savior Torah because he's a human, he's a Jew, and every Jew has to write a Torah, the king has to have an additional Torah and carry it with him. The king would have a little Torah. Wherever they go, he has the Torah with him. Because although he is the monarch and although he's in charge, he has to really, there, there has to be checks and balances. Who is he subject to? He's not the ultimate power. The Torah is to keep him in check. And that's the ultimate purpose of the king is to keep us in check, but to bring us to our connection to God. Commentaries explain, what does the word Shlomo mean? Salman. Peace. Shlomo means peace. But Shlomo doesn't just mean peace. It comes from the word Shalom, which means peace. But the grammatical tense that's used, Shlomo actually means his peace. Well, who 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 is the possession? Who is the possessor of this peace? God. When saying this prayer, we think of peace, but we think of the possessor of peace, the creator of peace, the ultimate peace, which is God. In other words, what we're envisioning here when we say this prayer, we're praising God. And these are quite exquisite praises that we've gone through here. And we're saying that that's peaceful. That's supposed to bring us to peace. 
A relationship with God should bring us to peace. A good relationship with God should bring us at peace with ourselves, should bring us at better peace with people. That's what it should translate to. Like it says in Pirkei Avot, chapter 5, how do you know if, you have, if you're on good terms with God, if you're on good terms with people? Sometimes you need to take a very um, extreme extent, uh, stance to preserve God's values, and people don't like that. Fine. But but that's not the norm. <laughs> you can't live a life like that. that that's not life. That's, that's an exception. There's times where, no, you got to be principled, 100%. But in general, a, a, a Torah lifestyle, a godly lifestyle, needs to translate into peace, and if not, we're doing it wrong. That's why King Solomon, who embodied peace, King Solomon was the only time in Jewish history, by the way, in his age, where there was only there was peace. There was world peace. Up besides from Mashiach comes, this was the only time in history where King Solomon's in King Solomon's age there was peace. He was a peaceful person. And this is what we envision when praising God. What we envision when praising God is not at the expense of peace. But that is the epitome of peace. What we see here is a transition. With the Yishtabach, we're transitioning. Again, we're finishing Pesuke de Zimra. The Zohar says... If you, if you think about, uh, go back to the parsh a few weeks ago where Yaakov is on his way, running away from Esav, and he goes to sleep, and he has a dream. There's this ladder, and the angels are going up and down the ladder toward heaven, and he hears this voice of God. Yaakov wakes up, and he says, this is the house of God. How could I have slept? And the, the language that the Torah uses to describe this ladder, Sulam Mutzav Artsa. It's this ladder with which the bottom is planted on the earth and its top reaches heaven and there's this portal to heaven. And the Zohar, one of the earliest works in Kabbalah, says this verse is how we describe prayer. Prayer is that ladder. It's planted in the earth. It's grounded. Its top is to heaven. And each section in prayer is a rung on that ladder, getting us closer to our relationship with God by getting us closer to our relationship with the soul. And that's why prayer is a... Every day that we daven, that we pray, and every prayer that we go through, we're getting closer and closer and closer to this goal. And what we're doing with the Ishtabach is we're transitioning from one rung to the next. We were on this rung of Pesuke de Zimra versus of praise, praising God. We're about to, we're switching gears. We're trying to get onto that next rung. One of my favorite lines from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory. I think I've said this before, but I, I just, I, you have an entire Talmud covering the entire gamut of, of, of Jewish life. You're learning brachos now, right? You have an entire Talmud section 
just exploring brachos, exploring the blessings, exploring prayer. You have a entire section of Talmud on on Shabbos, on the laws of mikvah. On the Talmud is, hold on, right? If you see on the screen there, okay, hold on, eh, hold on, right there we go. That's the Talmud. You see it? Am I grabbing it? Yeah. Well, plus it's there's a lot more to unpack because it's commentaries, but but it but it's discussing the entire gamut of Jewish faith. You don't have a tractate on faith, which seems to be central to Judaism. So Jonathan Sachs says, no, there is a tractate on faith. That's the sitter. The sitter is attracted on faith. Because like the Zohar says, each rung is getting us closer and closer to our relationship with God, our connection to the soul. And we're about to switch gears. What is the gear that we're switching to? What, what, what is going on here? What are the mechanics that's going on right now in our soul? Up until this point, we've been praising or appreciating not God, but what God does. I'll say that again. We've been appreciating what God does, not God. So if you look from, just quickly, go back to page 30 for a second. The Baruch Sha'amar. Right, the second, uh, second paragraph. Blessed is he who spoke and the world came into being. Blessed is he, blessed is he who says and does. We're blessing and praising what God does. And then throughout all the subsequent praises, we've we've been exploring the, the beauty of what God does. And we've gone through deeper insights and what that means in our soul and to ourselves, to our soulcology, for lack of better words. But at the end of the day, we've been praising what God does. We haven't yet been praising what he who he is. To really understand what God does, anybody can do that. You just need to be smart. You just need to think. If you're a thinker, you'll appreciate what God does. But at this point, we're trying to advance now. We're making the switch. And that switch is intercepted with Kaddish, right? Because we're switching to appreciate not no longer what God does. We want to get a better glimpse into who he is. And we're still not going to get there yet. Hold on. But we'll talk more about that next week. But we're about to get a better understanding or appreciation of not what he does, but who he is. You actually see this in the Yishtabach. I'm going to reference the Hebrew because it's easier for me. The second line, beginning of the line, on page 38. kadosh. What does Kadosh mean? Holy. holy, right? Holy means separate, distinct. Something that's holy is... Shabbos is holy. Why is Shabbos holy? It's different. It's different than the other days of the week. If Shabbos is the same as the other days of the week, then it's no longer holy. So it's it's different. So God is Kadosh. We're, we describe God as Kadosh. What does that mean? He's above. He's beyond. 
Now, practically, he's everywhere, but experientially, he's he's way beyond. What is he beyond? Bashamayim, the heavens, Uva Aretz, and the earth. God is above and distinct from heaven and from earth. From the perspective of understanding what God does, well, you'll get a better understanding in heaven than you will in earth, which means in heaven you're closer. But from the perspective of trying to understand who God is, you're just as distant in heaven as you are in earth. Because it's not about understanding. It, it, it's deeper than that. It's much deeper than that. So, to put it this way, okay. So, so, so put it, put it, put it this way. If my relationship with you is how I appreciate you, think about your relationship with your spouse. It's just about how you appreciate your spouse. You appreciate what they do. Right. So if you're in a space where you don't fully see everything, you're going to have a lot more faith. Right. And you have to start learning about what they do. But if you get to know them and you get to understand more of how hard your spouse is working for you, you're going to appreciate them more. There's varying degrees of levels of how much you appreciate them. But if you want to understand who your spouse is, not just what they do for you, that's going to be the same no matter what. <laughs> no matter where you are in relationship to them, they're not changing. That This is who they are. God is who he is. You could go to heaven. You could have more clarity. You could go to earth. But God is who he is. He's still distinct. He's still sacred. So how can you connect to God? If my mind isn't going to get me closer to him, my mind will get me closer to appreciating what he does, but my mind won't get me closer to him. How am I going to get close to him then? The answer is, you get one guess. Ishtabar. But but how is my prayer going to get me there? If my mind can't take me to him, what is? That's where the soul comes in. That's where the soul comes in. My mind won't get him. My mind will get what he did for me. My mind will see the, the effects. My soul will appreciate him. My soul will appreciate who he is on a much deeper level. And by the way, talking about how he's distant from heaven and from earth, we proclaim in the Kedusha, what do the angels say? I am a kum kvodo. Where is he? Even the angels in heaven, they don't fully understand him. Just as much as we don't understand him in earth. That's the neshama. That's the soul. The mind can appreciate what he does. And at some point, you know, there's a limit. <laughs> your relationship is defined by your appreciation. There's an advantage. It's deep. It's meaningful. It's personal. But what if you don't appreciate what he does for you? <laughs> Many people don't. 
right? The relationship is very much subjective, subjective to my perspective and ability and, and able to fluctuate based on, on my, my conviction. But if my relationship with God is my soul, I under, I get a, I get a deep rec, um, sense of who he is, not just what he does for me. The relationship is stable. The relationship is deep, much deeper, much deeper. And, and that's why take a look on the um, toward the end of the prayer. I'm going to do it in Hebrew, uh, the third to last line. Where it starts with Adon. Do you see that? Adon Haniflaot. Master of wonders. Borei Kol Haneshamot. You are the creators of souls. We're praising you. And we're realizing how you are distinct. Both from the spiritual realms and even and the physical realms. Not just from the physical world, but even the spiritual perspectives. Even from the angels. It, the mind can only understand so much. So how are we going to go through all these praises and appreciate you? Because you created us with a soul. It's the soul. I was once having a discussion with somebody who professes to be an atheist. And they want to know genuinely what is the the Tanya and Hasidic perspective on um, on atheism when Tanya is talking about so much about faith. How would how would the Tanya or Hasidic teaching address an atheist? So what I told him was, your soul has something in common with an atheist. Your soul doesn't believe. He says what? Your soul doesn't believe because it sees it. Has <laughs> your soul knows it doesn't need a belief. That's clarity. An atheist may not believe or say that they don't believe because they're lacking clarity. The soul doesn't believe because it has clarity. It doesn't need to believe. You don't need to believe we're on a Zoom call. You know we're on a Zoom call right now. Right? When you tell somebody about the Zoom call, they have to believe that you were on a Zoom call or not, or not believe it, right? So the soul doesn't have to believe. The soul knows. But our bodies and our minds are in this position where it has to believe. It has to kind of believe what the soul knows. And it's only going to believe what the soul knows if there's healthy communication between the body and the soul. Between the and between the soul and the mind. If there isn't proper communication, there's going to be internal tension. My soul so much wants this. My body is just too cynical. We spoke about this in chapter 29 of Tanya. In Tanya lingo, what we said was you have this log. Do you remember the log analogy that the Zohar that Tanya quoted from the Zohar? You have this log, it's not catching on fire. It's too insensitive, right? You spoke about this on Monday, David, breaking the klepa, mm -hmm. right? Got to sensitize that log so that it could catch on fire. And I have, have a question. Can yeah, I have go a for it. So um, I was listening to the Rabbi Russell. This um, I can't remember his first name. Oh, it's yeah, Rabbi, Rabbi Shimon Russell, yeah. 
Kevin Russell, yeah. So he said something very interesting that um, when you've had a trauma, there's a disconnect. So this atheist um, is every atheist can that can be also seen as a disconnect from the soul, disconnect, and it's part of this journey of hitting the this the um, what do you call it? Hitting the the log to connect again and making sure that the spark exists. Exactly. It's 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 re it's it's like a rekindling the the the, the connection between Hashem because. Yeah, because yeah, that, that that thing it was so like relevant, like in terms of the disconnect and atheists and religion and not being part of a soul and exactly, exactly. In in, in other words, you will rarely, if not ever, see a Chabad rabbi trying to prove that God exists to another Jew. You don't see it. How many times do you hear of a Chabad rabbi saying to somebody, would you like to put on tefillin or light Shabbos candles or, uh, no, thanks, rabbi, I am not, I'm, I'm not religious. Oh, okay. Would you like to put on tefillin? Rabbi, I don't, I, I don't identify as, as religious and I don't believe in God. Oh, okay. Um, would you like to put on tefillin? Do you see this? There's this miscommunication here, right? <laughs> I didn't ask you about what you believe. <laughs> Your belief doesn't mean the fact that you don't believe in God doesn't mean that God doesn't exist and doesn't mean that he's not in your soul. All it means is we're not connected to our souls. There's this, like you're saying, Sharon, there's this disconnect between mind and soul. There's this disconnect. And one of the goals of davening is to sensitize ourselves to our souls and to our relationship with God as by climbing this ladder. You know where you see this in the Torah? The first Chabad rabbi. <laughs> Who's the first Chabad rabbi in the Torah? Avraham. Avraham. Avraham had a four-door tent and would serve people a lot of food <laughs> with the hopes of teaching them about God. <laughs> and Avraham was open to everybody. He was ready to teach anybody. And the Midrash tells us that you would have idolaters that would come in and he would feed them. And they would ask for the bill and he would he would first say, well, let's first, they would say thank you to him. He'd say, why are you thanking me? They said, you gave us food. He said, where did I get this food from? <laughs> I don't know, the store? Well, where'd the store get it from? <laughs> the farmers? Where'd the farmers get it from? The earth? Where'd the earth get it from? It's all from God. You got to thank God. They said, we don't do that. Thanks, but no thanks. In that case, let me give you the bill. And he would give them a pretty hefty bill. And they would look at it and they go, Ooh, maybe we should believe in God. They said, why, why are you charging us so much? Well, this is the desert. And um, there's a lot of work that went into this. I mean, for God, it's no big deal. But for everybody else involved, it's a, it's a big deal. They said, maybe we do believe in God. And they would thank God and he would let them go. And the commentaries wonder... This is a bit of a bizarre story. He didn't really get what he wanted, seemingly. Does he want them to say, you know, it's like that story the rabbi said. He doesn't want them to say, I love you. He wants. To, he doesn't want to say, thank you, God. <laughs> he wants them to actually thank God genuinely. He wants them to want it. What was he accomplishing? He forced them. He twisted their arm. 
So commentaries point out, and there's an, a fascinating talk about this from from the Rebbe, and he draws this into, and he ties this into the to the more contemporary Chabad rabbis. <laughs> Twist people's art. No, I'm kidding. But but what Avraham realized was that people have a very deep capacity to believe. They don't need convincing. They need, like what you described, David, a couple of nights ago, to remove the klipa. And sometimes the pressure in healthy moderation, not obnoxious pressure, I'm not suggesting that we obnoxiously pressure people, but sometimes healthy pressure can remove klipa. Right? It's like softening up that log. That's what Avraham was doing. He was just softening up that log. To inspire them to become more receptive. Removing the klipa. And we have tools. We have the key or the hammer. We have the tanya and we have many other works. But the sitter is where we, on a daily basis, emotionally engage in that exercise. The mind will understand potentially what God does. The soul will appreciate who God is. If this mind is not open to what God does, it's going to block the soul rather than to facilitate it. And that's why we daven to open ourselves up. So I'm, I tell you a beautiful story. There was a young Jewish boy in Oxford University. And he was, for lack of better words, totally um, estranged from his Judaism. Didn't practice anything. Had very limited knowledge. He knew that he was a Jew. He knew that there was Jewish tradition. But he wasn't engaged and he didn't care. He wasn't running away from it either, necessarily. I don't I don't think. I mean, I don't know the whole background of the story, but it just, this is where he was. He was in university and he was a smart guy and he was an intellectual and he thought about life and this is what life is about. He was engaged to be married to a non-Jew. He didn't even think about it. It wasn't a big deal. He was taking a trip to, I think, London. Although I don't know if it was London. He was on a, he was on a plane somewhere. In the back of the plane. And you know those bizarre announcements you hear on planes? I'm like, was that real? I was once on a plane. Actually, I shouldn't say this story, but I already started. I have a policy. Once I started, I can't. <laughs> I don't like to leave people on. <laughs> I'm sitting on a plane once, and I was sleeping. Whenever I sit down on a plane, I just fall asleep. It's like I just get tired. It's like you know, it's like one of those. It's like a rabbi speech. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so I I sit down. And I'm I'm out, and then the intercom comes on. Is there a doctor in the house? Not me. <laughs> I fall back asleep. <laughs> But um, somebody told me they were on a plane once and that happened. And it was a bunch of like psychiatrists. It wasn't what they were looking for. <laughs> but he's on the plane, this guy. And there's an announcement. Are there any Jewish people on the plane? Jewish people, please come to the front of the plane. It's from the flight attendant. And he's like, is this like an anti-Semitic thing? Is this, uh, what is this? He's the only guy that gets up and he goes to the front of the plane. 
And at the front of the plane, there's a Jew there, clearly observant Jew, who had had who had asked the flight attendant to make that announcement. You have to understand that when your Chabad rabbi, when you meet your Chabad rabbi, wherever you meet them, there's a reason why you're meeting them where you meet them. It's because they're crazy. <laughs> if you met us in Brooklyn, we'd be normal. We're in our habitat. You met us. <laughs> if you met us... Anywhere else? Why are we here? Because we're nuts, and that's beautiful. The, the soul's right. The soul's beyond the mind. Okay, it's beautiful. <sighs> You'll soon see what I mean by crazy, uh, and I don't mean this, God forbid, in a condescending way. I mean this in the most beautiful of senses. The flight attendant was crazy. The flight attendant made this announcement by request of this Chabad rabbi. The flight attendant points to this guy. It says, "Sorry for the strange announcement, but thank you for volunteering yourself." And he says, I know this is a bit bizarre, but here's the situation. There's a rabbi in Brooklyn, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, the Lubavitch Rebbe. Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, the Rebbe, is an incredible visionary. He cares about all Jews. And he knew I was taking this trip. He handed me this book. It was a Tanya. And he said, you're going to find a Jew on your travel. Look for Jews. And there's going to be a Jew that you see, and you're going to hand him this book. This is a true story. So he says to the college student, I'm handing you this book. This is my job. <laughs> he made this announcement on the plane, finds this random Jew who is in Oxford University, gives him the Tanya. He opens the book to where the bookmark happened to have been. This is a Tanya from the Rebbe where the bookmark was, and it's chapter 18. Hi. What is chapter 18 about? Chapter 18 talks about the innate love that a Jew has to God. And how the and, and the guy is reading it to him, by the way. He says, why don't we read it? It's the book of Marcus here. It happens to have been here. The innate love that a Jew has to God. And the love is illogical. We're like a love to a child. We don't have reasons why we love our children. Until they're teenagers, then we make up reasons why we love them. <laughs> but, but up until that point, we don't have a reason why we love children, especially when they're just born. There is no reason. They're very annoying. <laughs> There's no reason. that it's, it's, a, it's an unreasonable love. So God has this unreasonable love toward us. We have this unreasonable love toward God. And it's not a mind thing. It's not something we ponder. It's not something we think about. It's a soul thing. And you know what the proof is? This is what the Tanya says. Even the most irreverent of people would do whatever it takes to preserve the relationship with God and not cross a line that may sever their, 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 uh, their conscious relationship with God. And when they do so, it's not because they were thinking about their relationship with God. It was It's reflexive. It's reactive because the relationship is illogical. It's a soul connection, not a mind connection. I, I'm obviously paraphrasing. That's not what the Tanya says word for word, but he reads those couple of lines and the guy is just like, ooh, started rethinking his whole life. He ended up not marrying this person. His entire life changed. He married, it started a Jewish family. And to this day, this person carries tells the story. He carries this Tanya with them. 
But what does this story mean to us in context of our davening? We're shifting gears. We were talking about our understanding of God. But that's a catalyst to bridge the mind with the soul so we can appreciate not our understanding of God, but our deeper soul connection with God. That's the ultimate trajectory of davening. And it's the yishtabach that is the pivot toward the next rung in the ladder as we get there. We're still not there yet. That's going to be the amida, and we'll get there in a little while. Anyways, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it.